Well, good evening, church. Good evening. Please open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. So John chapter 3, 16 to 21. And uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, please lift up your hand nice and high. Uh, our ushers are coming forward, and they would love to put a copy of God's Word in your hands. Uh, you are going to need it tonight. Um, and so please lift your hand nice and high. And if you do not have a, a copy of God's Word at home, please keep this Bible as a gift from us to you so that you can take it home with you and, f and dive into the Word throughout the week. Uh, and so our passage this evening will be found on page 518 of those Blue Bibles. Well, church, I have the privilege of continuing in our Advent series this evening. Uh, and the question that we've been asking throughout this whole series is, is this. Are you prepared for Jesus this Christmas? Are you and I prepared for Jesus this Christmas? Or will we miss him? You see, we can easily say it with our lips that Christmas is all about Jesus. But is that reflected in the preparation of our hearts and our homes leading up to Christmas and during Christmas when we gather with our family and friends? As we've seen, Advent is defined uh, as like this, the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. You see, Advent is a time of reflection, and preparation of the coming Messiah through whom God would fulfill his promises. Remember, the entire Old Testament points to the advent of Jesus and the New Testament reveals it. And so in the first part of our series, we saw that we must prepare for the way of hope. And we saw that true biblical hope is found in God alone, and so we must trust in him alone for it. We saw that Christmas time is hope time, because Jesus is our hope. And last week, we saw that we must prepare for the way of peace. Peace is found only in Jesus, and so we must trust in him alone for it. Christmas time is peace time because Jesus is our peace. And this leads us to the following truth that we will see tonight. And it's this, we must prepare for the way of love. Now let me ask you a question as we, as we begin. What is true love? What is true love? Now, I know that when we hear the word love, it can be a loaded term that has been twisted and distorted in our world today. And as a result, it can bring up many ideas or expressions to mind. And so before we go any further, we need to be clear on what we mean by love. And so you'll see two definitions here on the screen. The first definition is how the world defines love. And it's this. An intense feeling of deep affection. This is how the world defines love. It's only a feeling. It's, it's transactional. Right? And the motive behind this kind of love is self. It's all about ourselves. I'll love you based on what you've done for me. Or I'll love you 
based on how you've made me feel. It's all about self. I'll give you love as soon as you meet my needs. It's all about self. But here's how the Bible defines love. The Greek, one of the Greek words to, for love is agapao. And it means this. It means to give oneself for another. To regard the welfare of another. And in the Bible, this is the highest form of love. And this word conveys the special, unconditional love of God the Father. Do you see how radically different it is from the world's definition of love? It's much more than just feelings or emotions. It's a love that is all give. And it's a love that will never fail or disappoint. And therein lies the problem that you and I are faced with every single day. We will often look for real, true, agapao love in all the wrong places rather than going to the one who is the source of love. We, we will seek love from people, from pets, or things around us rather than going to the one who is love. And the result of this is always going to be the same. It's going to be discouragement. It's going to be despair. And ultimately devastation. Because we look to other things to give us love that only God can give us love. When has that happened in your life? How did it leave you feeling? You know, for many people, maybe even here tonight, the hurt caused in the name of love, the rejection given to them because of the no more love, or the devastation they felt because of pursuing a distorted love is why Christmas is such a difficult time for them. But here's some great news, loved ones. Here's some great news. We have a Savior who loves us so much that he willingly chose to come to earth for you and me. We have a Savior who modeled perfectly what love ought to look like and who offers it to you and I today. That is great news, loved ones. But to receive it and to live in it, here's what we must get tonight. Here's our big idea for this evening. It's this. Jesus is God's gift of love to you. So believe in him by faith to have it. Jesus is God's gift of love to you. So believe in him by faith to have it. And here in our text, we will see three truths that we must remember and live by if we are to know the love of Jesus that he offers today and to live in reality of it each day of our lives, no matter what is happening around us or to us. You guys ready to go? Let's go. Let's open up. Uh, let's open up God's word. Let's, in order to honor the authority of God's word, let's stand together as we read verses 16 to 21 together, nice and loud. And so, for God so loved the world, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But everyone... But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord, loved ones. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, here in our text, we see that Jesus is God's gift of love. And we see the first thing here, love's purpose is your salvation. Love's purpose is your salvation. And the question that you and I are confronted with here in these first two verses is this. God's love for you has been shown through his son. Will you see it? God's love for you has been shown. We have seen it. Through his son, will you see it? Let's get our context. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples for the Passover. And so in the opening verses of chapter 3, Jesus uh, in Jerusalem is approached by uh, a Pharisee named Nicodemus by night. And so Nicodemus was a a well-respected Pharisee. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. And so this whole interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus was concerning the kingdom of God and how one must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And so in verses 16 to 17 that follow, we see God's motivation and purpose for sending his son. And so at the beginning here of verse 16, the four there is very important. It's a conjunction It connects what was said in the previous verses with what is about to follow. And so let's read verses 14. Let me read verses 14 to 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so in these two verses here, we see that Jesus is talking about eternal life. And just as eternal life is acquired by believing that the Son has been lifted up, which was a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus now goes on to show in verse 16 that the, that the Son coming to earth and being lifted up was a result of God's love. Let's read verse 16 again. For God so loved the world. Right? Notice, notice the intensity there with which God loved the world. If you look at your Bibles, after the word world, you probably have a little superscript. And if you scroll down at the bottom of your Bible, it can also be worded like this. For this is how God loved the world. This is how God loved the world. And the word love there that we see is agapao. So as I said, as we saw earlier, it means to give oneself for another, to regard the welfare of another. And so for this is how God loved the world. And the Greek word for world there is where we get our our word cosmos. And so here the reference is to the entire human race. He's not just talking about a particular set of people. And so this is how God loved the world. Now, 
there are two ways that we can know that we are loved. The first one is if someone were to say, I love you, which is pretty common, pretty straightforward. But the second way that we can know we are loved is through demonstration, through actions. And oftentimes it's through those actions that we know that we are loved. And so a few weeks ago at the dinner table, I was having supper with my my family, my wife and my daughters, and, and I asked them, I asked them the question, hey, how do you know that I love you? And just for context, I tell them every day that I love them. And so it's not like they don't hear it from me. They do hear it. Uh, but their response was very striking. Their response, when I, when I think of my eldest daughter, rather than saying, well, I know you love me because you always say so, she immediately started to pointing, she, she, she pointed to concrete examples, things that I had done for her or with her. And to, for her, those actions that I had done either for her or with her were sufficient proof that I loved her. And loved ones, it's the same with God. God not only tells us in his word that he loves us, but he's shown us his love in action. This is, this is what verse 16 is telling us. Let's look, let's look again at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? God gave us his only son, Jesus, as a demonstration of his love towards us. And notice the word gave there. Don't skip by that word. Circle it. Highlight it. Right? God giving us his son is a gift. It isn't something that we earned. You cannot earn a gift. And we certainly don't deserve it. Love was his motivation for giving us his son. Let's continue reading here the last part of verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The word whoever there means anyone. It's not limited to a particular group of people. Right? It is anyone regardless of tribe, tongue, ethnicity, nationality, skin color, age, etc. There's no limits on this. And the word believe here means to embrace something as true. It's more than just head knowledge. Right? It means placing one's trust into or completely onto someone. And when it's a person, it means to trust them to be who they are and to do what they say. And so Jesus came to offer us eternal life. He came to offer eternal life to those who believe in him. And then in verse 17, verse 17 then elaborates on, John, on Jesus' purpose. Let's go, back. Let's go back to the text. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Right? Jesus didn't come to the world, come into the world to condemn the world, that is to judge the world. The world was already condemned. 
Right? When, recall Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God not only expelled them from the garden, but he also pronounced a judgment of condemnation on them. And mankind ever since has been under that sentence of condemnation. And so Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but rather he came that the world might be saved through him. The word save there means to rescue. Jesus came to rescue you. God's purpose was to rescue you. And so this is love's purpose, to save you and give you peace with God and eternal life with him. See, God's love for you has been shown through his son. Will you see it? One commentator said it like this. I love how he said it. He says, Jesus came to express God's mind. Jesus came to express God's mind. Jesus came as fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life of obedience for 33 years, and he went to the cross paying for the penalty of your sins and mine as God's wrath was poured out on him. He laid down his very life to save us. He received the judgment that you and I deserve. But then on the third day, he rose to life, defeating sin and death, and now offers eternal life to all who repent of their ways and turn to him in faith. And if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, well, two things I want to say. First, I'm super thankful that you're here. I do not believe that is by accident. But secondly, and it's this, and I'm praying this over you right as we speak. I pray that you would see this Christmas season just how much God loves you. I pray that you would see how much God loves you. And I pray that you would see and receive the greatest gift ever given. The gift of God's love for you. Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have believed and put their trust in Jesus... Here's a question for you. Here's a question for us. Are you still in awe about God's love for you? Are you still in awe? How you and I don't deserve any of it. How the only thing that we contributed to our salvation was the sin and the wickedness that made it necessary. A wickedness so bad that Jesus, God himself, had to come to earth in the flesh and die in your place as your substitute. Will you ask the Lord to help you see it afresh this Christmas? And here's why, here's why it's essential that we understand this. You'll see it on the screen here. We will never fully understand the magnitude of God's love for us until we understand how much it cost him. You and I will never truly understand the magnitude of God's love for us until we understand how much it cost him. God didn't give us his leftovers. He gave us his very best. That is love in action. See, Jesus is God's gift of love and love's purpose is your salvation. And from this, the next thing that we see here is this, love's path. And that's your belief. 
your belief. And the question that you and I are confronted with here in verse 18 is this. Belief in Jesus is the only path to eternal life. It is the only path to eternal life. It is not a path. It is the only path to eternal life. Will you believe? Let's continue reading here. Verse 18 says this. Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, in verse 18 here, Jesus now draws a clear distinction between two groups. Those who believe and put their faith in the Son alone for salvation, or those who don't. And the person who believes in Jesus, notice what the text says, is not condemned. Right? The term condemned there is in the present tense, and it means this, has not been judged and found guilty of their sin. Their condemnation, their guilt, the penalty for their sin has already been removed. They are free from condemnation. However, the person who does not believe in Jesus, it says, is already condemned. That is, they have already been judged. And at the end of verse 18, Jesus tells us why this is so for the unbeliever. Let's go back to the end of verse 18. It says, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. They stand before God guilty for their sins because they have refused to believe in God's solution to remove their guilt. That is why they stand already guilty. God's wrath remains on the unbeliever and the penalty for their sin is separation from God for all eternity in hell. You could read that a little further in verse 36. And so we see because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, to believe in the name of someone is to place one's complete reliance on everything that name stands for. And so the name of Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. And so to believe in the name of Jesus is to fully trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And so these are the only two options that we see in scripture, that we see in this text here, loved ones. No one is neutral before God. You either believe or you don't believe. And notice what the text doesn't mention. It doesn't mention anything about good works. It doesn't mention anything about being a good person or being able to receive salvation through any other false religion or false God. Belief in Jesus is the only requirement. Now look at the world around us today. Is this what the world promotes? Is this what the world promotes? Quite the opposite. If anything, the, the world promotes anything but that. The world believes that there are multiple ways to attain eternal life. Some believe that truth is relative. That truth can be whatever you make it to be. Others believe that following a set of rules or even dying as a martyr earns your way in, 
to eternal life. Others believe that eternal life is, is attained by good works, that somehow you can earn your, your salvation because of what you do. Loved ones, those are all lies from the pit of hell. They are all false. That is exactly what the enemy would want you to believe. Yet here we see so clearly, God shows us so clearly that there is only one way to eternal life. Believe in, belief in Jesus is the only path to eternal life. Will you believe? And for those who, who do believe, who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I, I ask you this, like, in whose name are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the name of the only Son of God? Where are you striving on your own merits rather than trusting in Jesus' merits and what he has done for you? You see, Jesus is God's gift of love and love's purpose is your salvation. Love's path is your belief. And finally, it all leads to this. Love's power is your obedience. Love's power, your obedience. And in the final three verses, this is the question that you and I are confronted with. God empowers his people for good works. Will you walk in them? God empowers his people for good works. Will you walk in them? You see, in the remaining three verses here, Jesus shows us that there is a fundamental distinction between the unbeliever and the believer. Between the one who rejects God's gift and the one who receives God's gift. And the distinction is this. They walk in obedience. They walk in obedience to him. And so in verses 19 to 20 here, the judgment given is entirely negative and is given to those who reject God's gift. Let's read verse 19. It says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, the term judgment here means verdict. It's a sentence of condemnation, right? Light has come into the world. And so the light here is a reference to Jesus. It refers to the full revelation of God in Jesus as the incarnate word that has come into the world. This is why Jesus said in John 8, uh, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And did, did you notice in verse 19 what, what the coming of light does? It exposes the darkness. This is what the light does. Let's go back. It says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People love the darkness too much. Rather than walk in the truth of who God is as he is revealed in his son, Jesus, 
People prefer to walk in darkness because the darkness hides their sin. And because they love the darkness, they refuse to come into the light. This is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, he says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, because people's works are so evil, they hate the light. And because they hate the light, they refuse to come into the light. This is a willful choice on their part. They avoid the light lest their mask comes off and the true state of their heart be revealed and they feel convicted of their sin. This is why they hate the light. The verb exposed here suggests more than just revealing but it also seems to imply shame and conviction. It also seems to suggest shame and conviction. But let's look at the contrast in verse 21. It says this, But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, in this last verse, we see love's power in action. The fruit of the believer, right? The one who believes does two things. Did you see it in the text? Does two things. He does what is true. The believer will do what is true, meaning that they act faithfully in an honorable way that is consistent with the truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. And so they not only do what is true, but they also willingly come into the light. And again, this is a willful choice on their part. They will willingly come into the light. They have nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. Let's read the last of the last the second half of verse 21. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, in coming to the light, their works are proven to have been carried out in God. That is, their works have been carried out in union with God and therefore by his power. Right? It is the Holy Spirit who empowers them. Anything good in the believer is a result of God's work in and through them. So this is love's power, walking in obedience. This is why Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, loved ones, obedience is proof of God's power at work in and through us. Obedience is proof of God's power at work in and through us. You see, the distinction between light and darkness here is just so clear. And here's the thing about light and darkness. I know Kevin touched upon this last week. They cannot coexist. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Light will always displace darkness. And so here's the picture of the outcome of the actions of the one who is not saved in Jesus Christ, even though some claim to be. Uh, tech team, could I get the lights please turned off? And so this is it right here. This is it. This is the life of an unbeliever. 
They look like, they speak like, they think like, they act like the rest of this increasingly dark world. Yet, here is the powerful picture of the fruit of the one who is saved in Jesus Christ and has his power living in and through them, displaying his glory. This is it. I got to be careful not to flash this in people's eyes. This is the picture of the believer. The, the distinction is just so clear. All right, thanks team. We can have the lights back on. What does light have in common with darkness? Absolutely nothing. See, God's, God empowers his people for good works. Will you walk in them? Now, you may be asking, okay, well, practically, what, is, what does the fruit of obedience look like? Here's a short list of what that looks like in the life of the believer. Firstly, we see this. It means this. There's an increasing love for God's presence. There's an increasing love for God's presence. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so a love for God's presence, an increasing love for God's presence means an increasing desire for God's presence through a desire to abide in the word. Right? And, and by abide, we, abiding means to remain under, to remain in a fixed position. And so it's not necessarily just a 30-minute thing in the morning and then you go about your day, but no, it's, it's bringing Jesus with you throughout the entire day, bringing into, bringing him, allowing him to come into every situation that you will face with throughout the day. And I love this. As you abide in him in verse 11 of John 15, he promises that your joy will be full. Right? When you increasingly desire and abide the presence of God, you increasingly grow in your joy. He fills your joy. And so secondly, it also means this, a love for the word. A love for the word. Jeremiah 15 verse 16 says this. Jeremiah says this. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name. A love for the word means an increasing longing and desire for the word, taking in the word, meditating on the word, and finding your satisfaction in the word, which leads to a joy and a delight in it. And so there's, there's an increasing love for God's presence, an increasing love for the word. Thirdly here, there's an increasing love for the church. There's an increasing love for the church. And in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, it says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the fruit of obedience in that, loved ones, is there, there will be an increasing desire to gather as the church 
to not forsake meeting as the church, to make it a priority and to keep it a priority. And lastly, we see is this, there will be an increasing uh, love for the lost. There will be an increasing love for the lost. In Matthew 9.36, it says this, when he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You see, Jesus had a heart for the lost. He had compassion for the lost. And the more we walk in obedience, the more we will have a heart for the lost and the more we will have compassion for the lost, just like Jesus. And so I want to exhort you guys. You guys all had invitations, Christmas Eve invites on your chairs. Take those home with you. Take those home with you. Who has God put around you? in which you can extend that invitation this season. Our Christmas Eve service is next week, so there shouldn't be any more cards remaining here at the end of the service. Christmas is one of two holidays in which people are most open in coming to church. It's probably like one of the, it's one of those two times where you will face the least amount of opposition with that invitation. And so who has God put around you? Please be in prayer about that. You see, loved ones, obedience is proof of God's power at work in and through us. And if you are here and you have never trusted in Jesus as your personal Savior, well, the reality is this. You can't obey the Lord because you have no power to obey him. Right? We can only obey Jesus in the power of Jesus. Will you see his love for you? Will you believe in him and walk in him today? Today can be the day of your salvation. The greatest gift you will ever receive and it can happen to you today. And brothers and sisters, just look at this list here. Where are you you not walking in the light? Where are you not walking in the light? Where is there more of the world's attitudes, actions, and priorities in you rather than Jesus in the world through you? Where do you need to repent? And I just want to encourage you, like if you're here, if you're saved in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But I want to exhort you, just take time to repent. What boulders need to be removed so that you can prepare the way for Jesus this Christmas and walk in his power? This is the fruit of true love. Obedience is is the fruit of true love. God's love. You see, Jesus is God's gift of love. And love's purpose is your salvation. Jesus came to save you because he loves you. Love's path is your belief. Belief in Jesus, the only son of God. And love's power, your obedience. A life of increasing obedience in his power. 
This is why we celebrate Christmas. Love has come and his name is Jesus. Will you believe? Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for your word. Thank you for being God's gift of love to the world. For coming to earth and identifying with sinful humanity in order to save us. This is what Christmas is all about. And so thank you for not only showing us what true love is, but for also empowering us through your spirit to love like you have loved. Thank you that we can love because you have first loved us. And Lord, forgive us when we make Christmas about anything and everything else but you. Help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts for you this Christmas that we would see and be in awe of this undeserved gift. I pray that you would do this increasingly in our lives and increasingly in your church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Church, will you stand and respond with us in worship?